Welcome to the Oh God podcast. I'm Reeves. And I'm Maddie. And yeah, we're here. This is we're great. here. Just vibing. Um, Maddie, I have an important question for you. Okay, I'm ready. What is your go-to karaoke song? <gasps> wow. This is very important to me. So <laughs> I actually have a very funny, according to my friends, very annoying story about my uh-huh, go-to karaoke uh-huh. song. So a couple of years ago, I did an internship with the Missouri Conference of the United mm-hmm. Methodist Church. And we have a program called the Mozambique Initiative where we partner churches in Mozambique <laughs> with churches in Missouri. It's wonderful. They do really great work, um, specifically with schools and clean water. It's amazing. Yeah. It was awesome. And I got to go tour and see some of our uh, partnerships for two weeks that summer that mm-hmm. I worked there. And it was Sunday morning. We went to church, which it was the most beautiful church service that I've ever been mm-hmm. to. And we get done and it starts raining like in the middle of worship in, in Mozambique. And so I get home and we like go to somewhere and we're listening to music and they start playing Africa by Toto. And instantly mm-hmm. I was like, I bless the rains mm-hmm. down in Africa. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that. so that instantly became my go-to karaoke yes. song. Plus I really like to sing like listen to it and try to sing all of the harmonies. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's so good. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the best. Um, Weezer did a cover of it. Not oh, as good amazing. as the original, but I love Weezer. Big, big fan. I had my friend Katia karaoke it with me at annual conference one year. Amazing. We had a great time. So that is my go-to. Amazing. What is yours? Oof. Mine is hands down. Macklemore's um downtown. Yes. <laughs> I I love that song too much. Um I don't really know where the love comes from. That song is a But bop. it is deep. Like that is I am notoriously bad at knowing the lyrics to songs. Like I never know what the actual lyrics are. I'm just always kind of like beep boop bop, you know, just kind of like vibing but not knowing any of the words. Mm-hmm. But that is one song that I know every word to and will like viciously sing it at you. <laughs> um yeah. I support I, you in that. Thank you. <laughs> it's so I good. really love that song. I cuz it's so silly and stupid and just I love all of it. I desperately need to see you karaoke that song. Yeah. It yeah. could happen. It could it's, happen. It's on the list. The okay. the post the post coronavirus <laughs> list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a little karaoke outing. Wow, incredible, incredible. Well, today we are following up on our episode from two weeks ago. That's yeah. how this works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every two weeks. Yes, mm-hmm. math. <laughs> yeah, our episode from a couple of weeks ago where we talked about our need to diversify our language for God, and so we talked about how. God is really bigger than the language that we use to describe them and how when we intentionally associate language of God with the very real experiences of our friends and our family and ourselves as we do this work of deconstruction and unlearning systemic things that we exist Mm. in, all of this stuff, when we associate our language with God with those things, then we begin to see God in that work and we see God in our friends and in our family and in ourselves and we can begin to expand our knowledge of who God is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, um, 
we're going to be jumping right in with uh, talking about apophatic theology versus cataphatic theology. So a lot of this week um, I pulled from an amazing and comprehensive Wikipedia page, as well as, um, again, the book we, I referenced last week, She Who Is by Elizabeth A. Johnson. And we'll also be pulling all of the resources mm -hmm. off of the page that you found, because we looked through them, obviously, to make sure the Wikipedia page wasn't tampered with by like a teenager in yeah. the dark. Yeah. So we'll pull all of those resources as well. Yes. And we'll have a whole comprehensive list for you to go back to. Yeah. Because this is some really good stuff. Yeah. And you were explaining it to me and my mind was just being mm -hmm. blown. So I'm excited to have you break it down. Yeah. And we want to make sure that like, if you want to go deeper on anything, because this is going to be sort of like a, at a, you know, not a super shallow level, but not the deepest you could go. So we want to always make sure that we give you the resources. So if you want to go deeper on a specific thing that you heard, that you have the tools to do that. So um, apophatic means to negate. Um, cataphatic means to affirm. So most of our God language is affirming God language. So it would be cataphatic. Um, so God being our mother, God is our father, God is our creator, God is our friend. Apophatic theology would do the opposite of that. It would say God is not our mother. God is not our father. God is not our friend. Because it's trying to get at the idea that God is not limited to just being one thing, but that God is so much deeper and broader. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think, so the nice thing about this is you know all of this. I don't know like hardly any of it. I know so. some of it. <laughs> Way more than I do. Yeah. So I think I'll kind of serve as the like, let's break this down as mm -hmm. we go space. And so the gist of this is that the language that we use currently is affirming in that we say that God is something. Yes. And so when we talk about negating God, we're saying that God is not something. Yes. And yet in the language that we're saying God is not, it's the same terminology that we're saying God is. So yeah, and they don't they don't always go together. Um like you can do sort of apophatic and just kind of negate God. It's for the purpose of trying to see God as something broader, but then you can also like typically uh we only do cataphatic theology. So we only label God as things that um we can see God as. So but yes, they also um definitely go together super well because you can take one statement and then turn it around and it kind of shows you God is aspects of something, but God is not maybe that entire thing. So it's just trying to like break it down and be like, God is more than that one thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think in my head, how I, how I kind of perceive this is that we look at God very linearly. Mm -hmm. So almost like we're looking at God through a window pane. Whereas this is getting us to the understanding that really looking at God is like looking through a prism. And so no yeah. matter what way you turn it, you get this different light, this different angle, this different understanding or way of viewing God mm -hmm. by mixing up the language that we use to describe God. Yeah. And kind of getting outside of it and realizing like this one word is not enough. And so like, let's look at it sort of from different angles or see different aspects of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So apophatic practice has roots in Greek philosophy. Um, and it's also practiced in all of the Abrahamic religions. So um, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all of those religions have roots in apophaticism and sort of negating what God is for the purpose of having a deeper, broader understanding of who God is. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, so Gregory of Nyssa, who was sort of around like the 335 year, which is like <laughs> thrown it back early. Um, Just like way, way, yeah. way back. Yeah, super back. Um, but he would frequently discuss God's appearance to Moses in the burning bush in an effort to talk about the fact that like God, this is when God reveals himself and reveals themselves to, um, to Moses. And God is claiming that they are simply, I am. Um, and that is it. So, um, Nisa would frequently, who is sort of like a founding father of the church, if you will, I guess, um, he would talk about this frequently to argue the fact that we need to have a broader view of who God is because God didn't limit, um, who God is, you know, and Mm. we, we sort of choose, you know, a few words, but, um, we need to have a broader view because it is broad. I, oh, I love that. I also, this is probably my favorite Bible story Mm -hmm. is Moses at the burning bush for like a million reasons from the way that God gets his attention to the actual (laughs) interaction as a whole, to the fact that God, you know, goes in and shows up and all like, Oh, it's so good. But what I think is so interesting here, when we talk about the fact that God refers to themselves as just, as mm-hmm. is that God also showed up as an element mm-hmm. over a gendered thing, which, and it was multiple elements, if not all of them in some ways. Right. I don't, because earth, you have wind, fire. earth, wind, yeah. fire, like God just is yeah. present, which is so interesting. And, and yet even in this moment, because we are in a society that genders, everything Mm -hmm. we have even gendered this interaction Mm -hmm. but god god just showed up as earth Mm -hmm. like as elements of the world literally not as a being like in a bush that was on fire that was smoke and holy ground and like all of like it's just (laughs) it's so good and and it's interesting that there's not even really good words to describe that in our language yeah yeah god just showed up trippy and was or yeah. God was like a giant pillar of fire. Yes. Why do we not talk about that one more? Like that one throws me off every time I read. I'm like, so he's pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. Okay. Anyways, Exodus is a trip. <laughs> it, you know what? It really is. Yeah. Um, a pillar of smoke is actual sustenance. Is all of these things mm-hmm. never shows up as like a per anything? Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, it's like we really don't see that version of thinking about God as a human until we have Jesus. So like Mm -hmm. most of the Jewish tradition, like before then was just God sort of being more of an element or more of this like unattainable. I don't know. It's interesting. I love that. Yeah. Um, So then fast forwarding to the 16th century. So the like medieval times, um, St. John of the Cross wrote The Dark Night of the Soul, which is still a pretty well-known work that's referenced. um, I feel like that's one that just kind of like pops up in a lot of different things that I'm reading or listening to. Um, And a lot of times it's talked about as... um, because it's a poem and it's a pretty short poem. It's like eight stanzas or something. I don't know. I don't know poem talk, but it's, it's short. I like read it earlier today. It's attainable. Um, And it's, most people view it as sort of being like 
talking about life's hardships and working through them, but it's actually, he wrote it about um, the mystery of God and how we don't have a clear view of God is because he was a pretty big um, proponent of apophaticism and sort of like the the mystery and um, wonder of God's character. So like, mm. that's an interesting fun fact that I did not know today because previously I thought it was just about sort of life's hardships. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, I, uh, I encourage everyone to kind of look it up. Um, maybe we'll link the poem in, in our notes as well. But um, fast forwarding again, we get C.S. Lewis, who uses negative theology in his book, Miracles, which came out in 1947. Um, and he's quoted by saying, we must first think about God in order to cleanse our minds of misconceptions. Mm. And then we must refill our minds with the truth about God unattained by mythology, bad analogies, or false mind pictures. Mm. I think that just <laughs> that just really covers it. You know, this idea of like we have these, we, we sometimes have false and bad analogies for God. We mm -hmm. have analogies that can be harmful. Um, yeah, and it's important to cleanse those things and then try and replace it. So um, that's really what apophaticism is, is trying to cleanse our mind of the notion that God is just this one thing and dwelling in the fact that our words are not enough to even encompass um, what God is. Yeah. Wow. I think that quote is just so, so good or like bad or false mind pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think about how often I attribute my imagery my perception of the world, my understandings onto God. And, and I think like what I'm excited about with this whole practice really is the idea of getting into the habit of learning and unlearning and learning and unlearning and making that a spiritual practice, mm -hmm. which I think as we go through deconstruction and reconstruction and rebuilding our faith and all of these things, that becomes a rhythm, but I think just making it a priority to do that um, is huge. And I think especially thinking about, you know, getting rid of false mind pictures, bad analogies, these stereotypes and these labels we put on God. I think one of the ways that we do that is by attributing gender and pronouns onto God. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to talk about why we shouldn't do that mm -hmm. um, and maybe some ways that we can begin to unlearn that. I yeah. think um, that's an ongoing work because, again, I mean, gender is ingrained in who we are yeah. in society and it's a work we have to unlearn. But I think we have to be careful when we use it with God. But for a lot of this conversation, um, I am pulling from a theorist, a philosopher, a feminist a theologian named Ju Judith Butler. And Judith Butler has done so much work and written so many books around this idea of gender. Specifically, the one that I've read the most recently is Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity. Incre it's an incredible <laughs> book. It's so good. But they have all of these books on this idea of gender and gender performativity. Hmm. And so according to Butler, our understanding of gender is performative. It is a societal construct that we're born and we're raised into. And it's so ingrained in the world that we live in that 
we have a tendency to perceive it as part of the natural order because it's just the world that we're in. Mm -hmm. And it's been handed down so seamlessly that we just kind of take for granted that that's how it's supposed to be. And what happens is this understanding of gender begins to exist for us in a patriarchal, heteronormative, binary understanding of male and female. And because that is the world that we live in, we take that mindset and we attribute those characteristics to God. And ironically, the binary doesn't begin to encompass all of the people in the world. Mm. So it certainly does not encompass all of God. Yeah. And yet those are the two labels that we operate in. And so as people, we begin to exist in a performative manner. And when they talk about performative, what she's not saying is is like a play or like theater, but it's more so that there are pieces of our, our characteristics of the ways that we act in the world that we learn based off of mm. what is happening around us. And we begin to perform in them in a way that they become a part of our identity. And so as we begin to unlearn some of those things, we begin to find out more and more about who we are Oof. and the things that we really like and really <laughs> care about and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And it's very liberating to, to step out of that space and to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And so with all of this, for me, the problem that I have when we attribute gender to God exclusively like when we make God exclusively male specifically, or in my past, I went through a window where I had to make God exclusively female in order to get through a lot of things. And the issue that came up is that we put God into a box and we argue that they can only be or only really do the things that fit into those prescribed understandings mm -hmm. of gender mm -hmm. that we know. Mm -hmm. And so that makes God completely limited to what we can understand understand and comprehend. And so it's hard to understand when God moves outside of these more, you know, understood male and female roles because it doesn't fit into our notion of a gendered world. It's hard to comprehend that that's mm. God if I can't make that connection because it doesn't fit what I see and understand and perceive. Oof. And so... Yeah. It's one of the reasons that I think it's so important to approach God and approach scripture from what is called a queering perspective, which, you know, queering in this case is being used as an adjective. And it's an actual act of engaging scripture and faith from a non-heteronormative patriarchal perspective. It's, it's looking at scripture and stepping outside of the way that it's always been looked at and interpreted and into the perspective that exists outside of that box. And it changes how we perceive God. Mm -hmm. There's some incredible commentaries that I've had the opportunity to read in a class of mine that take stories in scripture and break them apart in ways that I never would have considered because they're not being read yeah. from this very rigid space that we've kind of created around the gender binary. And God shows up in ways that like my brain was like, oh my gosh, how have I missed that this entire yeah. time? Yeah. Um, and it's been really cool. And so I think that that's important. And in all of this, I think the piece that's often missing in this conversation, and we touched on it a bit in the last episode, but really focusing in on it here, is that when we talk about 
you know, God is and God isn't. And God is, you know, gendered, but God is not gendered. What we're not saying is that God can never be male specifically, because I think that's the one we pull apart the most, right? What what I'm not saying is God isn't or could never be male. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that God is or isn't. I'm just saying God is not exclusively those things. Yeah. God is and God is not simultaneously. And when yeah. we open up to that idea, we stop expecting God to operate in certain ways and God can just operate yeah, And then we start to see this whole new perspective and world open up because we're not like so tightly gripped to our understandings mm-hmm. of who God is supposed to be. Oof. That was good. Yeah. I really feel like the older I get, the more I'm just, I mean, I made that sound like I'm 92, but, My I, old age. <laughs> but I do, I feel like the older, like, I don't know, the more life I've lived, the more I'm like, oh, I'm really just trying to unlearn everything I was taught before, you know, like, I just feel like I'm in this constant process of trying to unlearn things or trying to, there's just so many different ways to view it. And, um, I feel like for so long, you're sort of shown this one view. And, um, for me, that's why this conversation is so important because it was a really hard journey for me to, um, start to think about God in a different way. Like it really made me wrestle with like, if I'm not believing in the thing that I feel like I was shown um, most of my life or the thing that I'm kind of surrounded by, which was not like, I feel like, um, you know, I was pretty fortunate with like having parents that I felt like had a very like uh, open and like healthy view of God and like sort of well-rounded. So I don't feel like I was force fed that like God is, God is male only, but I Mm -hmm. do feel like the words we use sort of like reinforce that. Um, unconsciously. And anyways, I feel like my, my mind just kind of exploded when I went to college. And then, um, when I started my liberation theology class and was just completely like eyes opened to talking about how God fights with and for the oppressed and how God is Mm -hmm. always the God of the oppressed and how, how much oppression is in the world? Because at the same time, I was starting all these sociology classes and I was just like, oh my gosh, my reality is completely shattering. Um, And there was this tension and rift between sort of what I traditionally viewed and thought of as God and um, what I was learning about in all these heartbreaks and, um, you know, oppressed and marginalized people and like, how, yes, of course, this God who champions for people all throughout the Bible would be the God of the oppressed. And so what does that mean about what I've been taught about God? Or like, you know, we read this, um, the Elizabeth Johnson book, She Who Is, and talking about language of God and how it can be damaging and limiting to only use certain words for God and how we do, we can't even begin to explain and understand. I remember like sitting in that class several days and my professor just being like, we're never going to understand the Trinity. Like we're never going to be able to comprehend and like have adequate language to even really discuss this, but like, we're going to try. Um, and like that to me was so beautiful of like, I don't know. I feel like we kind of have this picture in this easy, nice package of who God is. And then that's not sort of the reality. And for me, that was a really, um, kind of hard and lonely journey because I was kind of going through it without really I don't know. I didn't really talk about it. It was just kind of this internal battle. And actually in Elizabeth Johnson's book, she has this really good 
um, quote where she talks about how, uh, this journey of sort of deconstruction. And she says, for some, the journey involves a sojourn in darkness and silence, traversing a desert of the spirit created by the loss of accustomed symbols. Mm. And for me, that's really what it was. It was this dark, scary time of like completely shifting everything I knew and having to ask myself very basic questions like, do I believe in God? Mm. And then being like, okay, yes, no, I do believe in God. And then like taking a step further and being like, okay, well, what do I think this God is like? Does that match up with things that I've read and things that I've you know, previously been taught about God. And like largely, yes, they did match up. It was just that that one view that you're taught is almost so narrow that it's like you don't see that there's sort of any other way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> it's so good because I think you're so right. Like, I think at some point you get to this place where you have to ask some of these questions, like what is God and what is not God? Yeah. And how do I reconcile that tension? Mm -hmm. And I think, like, I think that you explain it so well and that it is this very lonely kind of space, especially, I think, within the church, because you have so many spaces where people aren't asking really critical yeah. questions. Yeah. And so you walk into that place. Like, I remember in college, college really for me was like the full arc of the first wave of deconstruction. <laughs> like, I think I'm in the middle of going through a second one right now of just expanding even more on what I believe to be true about God. But in college, I was like, I have this youth group education and some really personal experiences and I don't know what to do with it. And so I started hopping around in groups. And I remember, I remember being in someone's house for a small group through a church organization and we were reading through the book of Job and they were reading it literally. Mm -hmm. And I remember being, you know, I remember being taught that this maybe wasn't literal and these were ways for us to begin to, to grapple with these questions about God. And I literally, it went silent I was stared oh, at you. You would have thought that I just straight up said that like God wasn't real at all. Yeah. Like it was horrifying. I never went back. And it was for me, this full arc of not being connected at all, being way into this very evangelical, um, unhealthy, in my opinion, space and then back out. And I think I had to really ask those hard questions at one point of like, what is and isn't true for me and where do I go from here? And it's so lonely because I think the vast majority of spaces are there for people who aren't asking really critical questions mm -hmm. and they're just, they're just not designed for people who are. Yeah. And so that to me, when I started vocational ministry, that was it for me. Mm -hmm. Like I, really got intentional about being sensitive to the needs and the environments that I created because I knew my experience of being in a ministry, leaving that ministry, losing my entire community within mm -hmm. like a three hour window mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out how to rebuild that. Like I know that that was so minuscule compared to 
the even more magnetized experiences of people who have that happen based off of their identity. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I try to be very sensitive and to continuously be learning about how to make those environments better. And one of the ways that I am attempting to do that is by switching up the language, switching up the ways that we talk about God, attempting to remove gender as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um you know, partially because just the binary isn't fully inclusive of the experiences of all people. And partially because I, I honestly think gender makes it harder to relate to God. Mm-hmm. And we like we pick the most difficult label to give yeah. God in a lot of ways, because like how much easier is it to imagine God as a creator or a healer or a warrior or an element or something that we interact with on a daily basis? Because we can visualize that. Mm-hmm. And we can visualize that however we want, and it still works because God is and God is not simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think you just get more of the overall human experience when you push it outside of that. So I think for me, the reason that this is so important is because there are so many people who I believe would love a connection to the divine, whatever that is for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that the church holds some really valuable truths and some really incredible, like life-changing transformation and possibility when it comes to encountering God. And I think that we hinder ourselves so much because we put restrictions on God Yeah, and it just becomes like a whole mess. And so I think that's also a lot of where this whole show came from too, is like, how do we, how do we keep expanding this? Cause it is very, very lonely without yeah. people to do it oh, with. Oh my gosh. And like, yes, yes, it is. So like, I didn't talk about some of the things that I had deconstructed or like started thinking about God until, I mean, really until the last year, like it was a, I had been going through it internally for like some time and just like slowly going through the process of like unlearning things that I was like, no, I really don't think, I really don't think God would be that way or, um, expanding, you know, in different Mm -hmm. ways. But a lot of that was very alone and very internal. And um, that's hard. And it's hard to like never know, you know, sort of how someone else thinks or um, because it's, I mean, it's a very touchy subject. What you believe about God is very, um, very personal. And so it can just, Mm -hmm. it can offend a lot of people very quickly. But um, I like I was amazed when because I didn't learn about apophatic um, prayer or meditation because a lot of times it's used sort of like in a prayer setting or a meditation type thing. Um, I didn't I had no idea until maybe two months ago that that was a thing. Um, there's a really amazing the liturgist, um, which is like a group I love that like them. yeah they do like I don't know what you would call them like well, multi multimedia worship yeah I don't know they do cool stuff they do music meditations. Uh, it's also Gunger. Yeah. Is the liturgist. Yes. And I've I met Gunger Ooh. in middle school. Mm. Shout out to Elliot and Joy, <laughs> my youth leaders. We went and saw them. I'm pretty sure Elliot like ran outside and like waved down their bus <laughs> and was like, Will you please meet our youth group of Aww. screaming sixth graders? It was the coolest thing. They were so nice. I love that. But yes, the liturgists yeah. do a meditation. They're incredible. They do it like I swear by like most of their meditations and they just like put out a lot of really beautiful stuff. 
Um, but they have a like a it's like a two part thing where they have an episode where they kind of walk through um, a brief history of apophatic prayer and what it is. And then they actually have a meditation that is apophatic meditation. So it essentially like walks you through um, and starts with a positive statement. So a cataphatic one where it's like God is your father. And then you kind of sit there for a minute and you think about all the ways that God is a father and that God does um, exemplify being a father. And then it starts, it has a second statement that's God is not your father. And then you sit there and think of all the ways that God is not limited to just being a father. And then it takes it a step further and it's God is not, not your father. Mm. And that's where the goal is to just kind of get you to a place where there are no words. Um, we've kind of reached our boundary of like thought and words and images of what God is because we don't have sufficient ones. Um, Mm -hmm. so for me, that's been a really powerful practice and tool that, um, I wish I had years ago, honestly, because I think it would have just like helped me out on this journey a little bit more and to know that like deconstructing like um sort of rethinking and trying to reevaluate your language of god is not a thing that was specific to me you know that mm-hmm. i'm the only person that's ever done that like it was really beneficial to be like oh this is a there's a deep history in christianity of constantly questioning and negating and redefining how we see god so mm. yes mm-hmm. and so let's keep doing it yeah let's do it now why yes. not let's go <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, as we continue on this week, we want to encourage you to check out the liturgist meditation. Yeah. Go through it. We're going to go through it. We're Mm going to share through Instagram some of our thoughts and we want to hear from you. And so as you try this out and continue to dabble in the language that you use for God, let us know how it's going. Mm -hmm. We want to support you and we want this to be a community where we're not alone and we're not doing this by ourselves. Um, I think the reason deconstruction is so lonely is because it feels like you're alone. And the yeah. whole, to me, like the one of the most foundational pieces of the gospel is that we do it in community. Yes. And so let's do this together. Mm. Let us know how it's going. Yes. We're excited to see how you begin to expand through this. Yes. It is okay to have questions. It is okay. You are not alone and just talk about it. We love it. Yeah. We'll talk to you guys this week. Yeah. Bye. Maddie and Reeves are both faith leaders, and the following conversation reflects their standings and beliefs, not those of their place of employment. Thank you.